Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Lena Viber. Based in Stockholm, Lena is a software testing expert and public speaker who helps build teams and organizations. She's currently engineering manager at Mentimeter, which makes interactive presentation software. You can follow her on Twitter at Lena Pejan. I didn't ask you how to pronounce that in advance, but it's uh, L-E-N-A-P-E-J-G-A-N. And check out her website at pejgan.se and read her blog at testing.pejgan.se. Lena is the author of the LeanPub book, Would Hugh Risk It? Tools, Traps, and Weapons for Software Testing. In this interview, we're going to talk about Lena's background and career, professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience self-publishing and writing a book. So thank you very much, Lena, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found yourself, uh, you know, initially at the beginning of your career uh, as a software developer. Uh, wow, we could talk about that all evening. Um, so my parents actually had this weird thing, or my dad had this weird thing where he he just kept moving. So I've been living in half of Sweden, if you go from. I've been I grew up in the southern part of, of Sweden in uh, what's almost Denmark. Uh, and then I've lived in Stockholm and in, um, well, almost half the way up in, in Sweden, depending on where where he wanted to try living for a while. So um, how did I end up in testing? Well, um, my dad had a home PC pretty early, so I, I grew up with the computer. Not in the, not in the way that uh, most of my male friends did with like programming. I did more of weird things like spreadsheets and write uh, essays and things. Um, but I kind of slipped into a softer computer science education. Uh, got my first job as a programmer and then it just, it just went from there. I found testing about 10 years later, which is sort of the wrong way around if you ask the career coaches, but testing was a more it was a different challenge. It was more of an intellectual challenge and less of a logic puzzle. So that suits me. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that. But um, uh, so you studied computer science um, and I believe statistics. Yes, um, they meant for us to do some sort of economics as our uh, minor. And I did everything I could to get out of that, which weirdly enough ended up being statistics which in hindsight is even worse um but yeah that's it's been useful for something i guess and uh, this is a question that i ask in various forms uh to most of the guests who are on the podcast because so many pe people who've written lean books are in programming and software and stuff but if you if you were actually starting out with the intention of having a career let's say in in testing now uh, would you do a full computer science degree or would you choose another path? Um, so I, I picked kind of the middle ground because I didn't do them in Sweden. There are engineering educations and then there are kind of the softer computer skills uh, programs. So I, I took that part and there's also um, there's more like a fast track now with boot camps and um, niche testing or specialized technical 
it's called something like higher vocational college or something like that. I think it's 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 very weird. Um, I would probably have gone for the more pure engineering education if I had done it today. Uh, but I was a bit too tired of school when I had to choose and picked what seemed like the smoother ride with more more of the the human parts and less of the math. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, what your first programming job was like. Um, uh, I think your your the year of your first professional job was the same as mine, which was 1999, I think. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, things were a lot different back then. My job only existed basically because of internet search. I was doing research on global mergers and acquisitions. Um, uh, what was it like being a developer in 1999? Um, well, first of all, that's the last year you could easily find a job as a programmer in Sweden. Um, so the, the, the class after mine, uh, they struggled to find their first job. So a lot of the people who, who graduated a year after me, they, uh, they ended up in different, different jobs. They are not in, in computing anymore. Um, so I had the, the luck of being that last class where we still could find jobs. Um, and I got a job at a company building software for the Swedish church. So incredibly niche. They built software for uh, planning graveyards, for uh, booking churches, for inventory. But they had one customer and that was the Swedish church. So my first big project was actually building their new salary system. So again, back to the economics that I wanted to avoid, but it's been following me my entire career. It's that's reminded me a, a former guest on the podcast was uh, one of his jobs was for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Uh, and it was particularly um, about the way they decide who, who to send where on their two year missions uh, mm. that they that they do when they're young. So doing doing work for churches, you're not the first person on the podcast to have done that. But uh, when you say that, actually, this is just kind of curious. When you say the Swedish church, I'm assuming that's a Protestant denomination. Yes. Okay. Okay. I guess we'll have to look it up. Uh, anyone listening who's not aware. There are probably other, um, other, uh, like Christian churches, but the Swedish church is the big, it's, it's the one that has almost been connected to the state, but, but not really. Okay. Okay. That's really fascinating. Um, and so, and you mentioned, and so you did that for, you did that, you did, you know, programming for about 10 years, and then you, you realized that there was a different kind of challenge that you wanted and that, I think a lot of people listening will understand what you mean by the sort of logic challenge of programming, but what's the, can you characterize the challenge that is particular to software testing? Um, so after 10 years, I found that programming was a lot solving the same problem over and over again. So it was, the, the challenge was not in the code anymore. I mean, I could probably have found it in learning another language or, or, or shifting, shifting company, but but it was, it, it felt like I was doing the same thing over and over and again. And I, um, as a relatively young woman still in IT, I struggled as, as many women with kind of getting traction. So I, I tried to ask to, to move into architecture or tech leadership and I was just shut down. And then 
I have no idea why, but testing was something that we suddenly started uh, focusing on a lot. So I said, well, well, I think testing could also be interesting. Um, and I was focusing more on the test leadership. So more, more like how can we, how can we be better? How can we do strategies that are more um, smarter, less, I wasn't that interested at the time in the, like, uh, sitting testing a web application. It was more about the planning and the, and the bigger picture. Um, so they sent us on, on a basic testing training, very traditional, very old school, uh, very ISTQB, uh, and I just loved it because I could see it was more about figuring out how to, how to find cracks. So less about the building and more about finding kind of weak spots, uh, finding where the pattern doesn't really match. And that's always been something that I'm, I'm good at. So I thought this could be a fun, if, something to try, a new career. And then I, I realized that it was really, really fun to kind of figure out where the hidden risks could be. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, your book is partly about risk, um, and, and there's there's it, it, software testing is such a, at least to me it's such a fascinating uh, subject because there's so much involved, particularly um, what you might call politics, right? Uh, like because uh, if you've divided up the work into say the people who say what the software is going to should do, and then the people who have to deliver that, and then the people who have to find the problems with it. If you're in the first two groups, you might have a, an antagonistic relationship to the third group, the testers who, who might, who, who are sort of, you know, you can think one way of thinking of testing is that it is an antagonistic um, activity, right? Like you're kind of going in and trying to break things. Uh, you're trying to find weaknesses and flaws or what other people might think of as mistakes. Um, how have you seen in your career things evolve when it comes to understanding that relationship, say, between the people who are programming and the people who are testing the programs that they build or have I you seen I a change never, <laughs> i never understood that testing was seen as something less than programming uh, because when i started there in 1999 we did we did everything we did the requirements work we did design we we did the front end and the back end the database and we tested and we did the trainings for the users and we uh produced the CD disks to actually send out for installation. So, so to me, it had always been a part of my job. Um, and, and the company I was at valued testing a lot. So I never understood until years later that it was seen as me actually kind of uh, stepping down the career ladder to move into testing. And I also think I was lucky that I had they already trusted me and they already knew that I, I knew what I was talking about. So I didn't get a lot of the pushback that a lot of other testers did. So that was a big kind of culture clash for me when I started talking to testers outside of my company where, where they were seen their salaries were lower, they, were, they had to fight to get their issues fixed. And I was very, very confused because I never had that. Um, so I think listening to other people, they have probably seen 
a shift to the better. Uh, but for me, I've moved away from companies where I was known and trusted and had all of that kind of trust capital into new companies. So, so for me, it was almost the other way around. Um, and then, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, companies that claim to be agile that aren't really, that try to push testing into, because it's, all, it's all, always seen as a cost instead of, I mean, for me, it's an obvious money saver to, to spend a lot of, on testing and especially testing early. Um, but in a lot of companies I've been in kind of my, my mid-tier uh, testing career, uh, it was seen as a cost and something that I wanted to push back. Um, so actually I left one company because I figured out that the, the upper management actually wanted to transform all of my testers into programmers. And I was like, but that's not what they, that's not what they are good at. It's not what they want to do. Why do we want to do this? Um, so, so for me, the shift has probably been opposite of the shift other testers have seen. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. It's it's. I, I think you, you you captured a lot of the complexity there. That there can be sort of part, partly that there can be trends in a, one's personal career that don't necessarily match the, the industry in general, but also, you know, it's interesting. I think people who aren't from within this sort of industry of software uh, might think of it as just a kind of dry exercise, uh, when in fact it's you know like like everything else, it's made of people. Um, and you know the reason the reason software testing exists is because, and I think we'll we'll get a chance to talk about this in a little bit. But like, you don't want that plane falling out of the sky, um, or back in the old days when you shipped programs on CDs, if there was a problem, there was an unfixable problem in there. And so the reason you know you have to have people testing stuff to make sure it works, uh, but then somehow there you end up with a weird presumption of kind of hierarchy, like the one who's testing it is just kind of you know. What's the old the old kind of cliche about testing video games where you just you're on a racetrack and you just hold the wheel to the right and scrape into the wall until something goes wrong. And it's like, no, it's way more complicated than that. You have to understand what the software is meant to do. You have to understand how it's been built. You have to understand what it's for. And you're not just going in there to break things. You're going in there with a sophisticated understanding of what the whole group is trying to achieve. But within the group, you're separated in teams. Maybe you don't even talk to each other. Maybe there's just some, you know, there's someone who's a manager who's got someone they have to speak up to about like, what are we going to be able to deliver this software on time? And then just inevitably you end up with someone being treated like they're hostile to the whole project because they report an actual problem. And you spoke, you spoke earlier about like getting money, you know, like, you know, you sort of have to get budgeting time and money and programmer time to fix problems and having to, I just, I guess, I guess what's it like to know there's a problem with something and meet resistance from the people whose job is to deliver it, who are themselves going to be faced with, you know, the calamity of their own rush in the end? What do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, so I think in, 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 in my early testing days, it was extremely frustrating uh, and I, I, so I tried to fight for everything. Uh, and that I think is something that a lot of uh, junior testers do because we, 
we get a bit obsessed, a bit control freaky, and we're like, we see these things, we need to fix it, and we can, we can. So I hate traveling because when people ask, because I see all the things that can go wrong. And when people ask like, but what's the worst thing that can happen? I say, well, I'm a tester. I can tell you exactly what's the worst thing that can happen. And the second to worst, and I have a list, uh, it goes down and you want probabilities, how, how detailed you want it to be. Um, so in my first years, I, I spent way too much time on fighting battles that weren't always the most important. And I got really, really sad um, when I couldn't, as I felt, win, win my battles. Um, I learned along the way, as you said, it's, it's so much about relationships. It's so much about building trust and using that trust, figuring out figuring out who the person you need to convince is, what, what's their drive, what motivates them. But because as soon as you know that, uh, it's extremely easy to get your point across because you can you can aim your message into into that tiny gap. So if you have a um, if you have a, a project manager that's really really worried about security, it's very easy to kind of use that against them, manipulate them, uh, which makes me sound horrible, but knowing the people you work with, knowing your stakeholders makes it so much easier. So the last years before I moved into more pure management, um, I rarely had any problems. Um, that kind of problem because I, I knew how to, how to make them listen. But also more importantly, I knew how to actually accept uh, that I couldn't fix everything and, and I could try at least to let go of the things that I could see. Well, maybe if this happens, it will be extremely bad, uh, but the likelihood of it happening is almost zero, then fine, perhaps we can ignore that. And I know the there are a lot of testers out there struggling with being seen as kind of the enemy. Yeah, there's, there's, it's, and, and do you think, I mean, do you think ultimately that it's, um, it's a, it's it's a it's the best way to have this kind of distinction between a developer or an engineer and a and a tester or should should everyone have to do some testing as just a routine part of their work? Uh, it's it's um, a tricky question that I really don't know how to answer uh, without being impolite to someone. <laughs> okay. I think there is a lot of testing that is better done by the developers. Uh, there is a lot of testing that is better done by the actual users. There's a lot of testing that's better done uh, while you're still at the drawing board, asking questions early. Um, but I think you need someone who has that as their main focus. It doesn't have to be in the entire process. It doesn't have to be all the time. But if you're constantly switching between delivery and building something and trying to find what's wrong with your solution, I think you, I don't think you get all of the pictures that you need. But I mean, I've worked with developers who were better testers than most testers I worked with. 
and I've worked with testers who are better developers than most developers I work with. It's just that they they found a particular part of developing software most more important than the other. It's really fascinating too, the question of, you know, you know, in security, they talk about red team versus blue team, right? So if you've built a system that you need to be secure, you actually want to have the most aggressive kind of smartest people on your team trying to break in. Uh, but at a certain point, you're only building that thing in the first place in order to go in the world and do something. And so you have to have some threshold that you cross um, where you say, okay, well, good enough. You know, we know from our testing or our, you know, team games and stuff like that, you know, where, where things can go wrong potentially, but we just have to go out there. And is that, is that something that is kind of decided on a case by case basis? Or is it, is, I'm asking this because I don't know, is it, or is within, within a big company, would there be like formal specifications for, you know, enough of the lights are green that we can go out now? I mean, there are still companies out there who do extremely detailed test cases and reports and uh, S-curves to see when bugs are starting to drop off and all of those things. And I mean, the, 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 the span in the industry is from the way we did it in the 60s to uh, basically doing nothing except watching it while it's in production. Um, I mean, of course, they do something, but not like formal testing in any way. And the, the, there's everything in between there. Um, I've worked a lot in like old traditional companies in Sweden, like insurances and banks and such. And they have a lot of requirements for um, being able to trace back if, if something fails, we need to be able to show that we actually what did we check? What didn't we check? Why did, did this uh, fall through the gap? Um, so they do a lot of the what people see as boring testing, uh, following scripts, um, checking off lists, um, doing doing like reports with um, minor, major, critical bugs and statistics and uh, dashboards. And then there are other teams where they. Basically, it's more of a hunch. Do we feel safe enough to release them? Yes, let's release. I yeah, think I trust the gut feeling more than the reports, but I also understand why we need the reports in, in certain industries. Well, and I think in, in one of the talks that I that I listened to preparing for this interview, um, you talk about you can trust your gut, but that's only after you've <laughs> you've had many years of of experience that that then you've kind of like, you know, it's kind of not exactly right to call it an instinct at that point, right? It's a very developed sensibility about about things. Yes, definitely. Uh, I mean, gut feeling is just you using all everything you've learned. Uh, and uh, like deja vu, you, you've seen it before. So you know that it's it's probably going to happen or not happen again. Um, in one of your talks that you give uh, called Delivering Fast and Slow and on the ethics of quality, I believe you talk specifically about the uh, Boeing yes. problem that we've all heard about. And I think actually you, you go into some detail about it. I, I actually didn't know uh, the story. Um, so I was wondering if you could actually maybe just tell our listeners the story about what happened at Boeing. Uh, and I'm sure everyone's familiar with, you know, the planes falling from the sky um, and, and what specifically the issue or the issues were 
Uh, so then we can talk a little bit about, you know, that that in the context of a talk about testing and ethics. So, um, I mean, a lot of what I what I talk about in that, that talk is also like collected from different um, different reports and blogs and interpretations other people have made. So, I mean, I'm, I, I wasn't involved in the in the uh, analyzing the problem. So I, I I'm not an expert on the subject, but I think it's a very, very interesting um, catastrophe because it was so many things that went wrong, which is usually uh, what I talk about in that, that talk. Uh, it's usually not one big bad decision. It's a number of bad decisions. So in the case of Boeing, it was, well, it started with money, of course. Um, our competitor said that they had a plan to, to um, produce a new airplane with um, less cost, less fuel, less uh, climate influence, all of those things. So Boeing decided that they had to do it, uh, the, them too. Um, and what's the easiest way to do it? Well, you take something you have that you know work and you adapt it. So they did that. They took their most popular um, airplane model and they looked at it and said, so how can we make sure, how can we reduce the, the fuel cost of this, this plane? And in doing so, they did, I mean, looking at it now, it's so stupid. They, they built bigger engines because bigger engines are more effective. Um, bigger engines are heavier, so it uh, affected the balance of the plane. So they moved them. Uh, when they moved them, the nose of the plane tended to kind of dip. So they, uh, instead of redesigning the aircraft, they built software to adjust that uh, tip of the nose, which is like in hindsight, why, who, who came up with this? Um, so that was basically the first problem that they, they took the, they tried to, to take the cheap route to, to doing this instead of designing a new airplane because that would be too, take too long. They, they took what they had and kind of uh, just uh, slapped some plastic padding on it. And then in addition to that, there was a lot of money involved. So they pushed for um, faster processing time. There were a lot of issues that were kind of uh, hidden under the rug. Uh, they decided that, uh, no, they didn't decide. The, there's an association that decides uh, if an airplane can, can fly. I don't remember the name. Um, American Association for Aircraft or something. Um, they decided that the pilots didn't need uh, any new training because they already had like hundreds and hundreds of hours in the old model. But the newer airplane behaved completely different while in, in, in flight. So basically all of those problems led to uh, the plane. There were two sensors that were supposed to kind of measure the, the angle of the tip. And they, of course, were faulty, so they um, signaled that the plane was uh, dipping, adjusted it. The pilots weren't ready for the autopilot suddenly just janking the plane up, uh, and then in the end, they crashed um, multiple planes. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really, thank you very much for sharing that. It's, um, it's, it's, as you say, yeah, you know, uh, in, in one of your talks that catastrophes like that don't happen just because of one big decision, even though it's one big catastrophe in the end, there's lots of little 
decisions made along the way, including including letting things go, right? And we spoke about how like sometimes you just have to do let things go out the door, but sometimes you know that it's wrong. And I think you talk in some of your other talks about having no you have to know when you're in software development or in testing or in any basically anything, you you have to have a bottom line or you should. Uh, have a bottom line and think about where that is. And in determining where your bottom line is, what you think about is the stakeholders. Who, who are you, Whose interests are you really supposed to be serving? Uh, how do you go about thinking about that when you're, when you're working on things? Do you think about the customers first? Do you think about the people the customers might be affecting? Um, do you think about how things can go wrong? I've had the uh, extreme pleasure of working with insurance software for most of my life. Um, and the good part about that is that the, um, the limit of error is very, very low. So it's okay to be very picky. Um, when I switched to other type of businesses where we're like more in media or, or e-commerce, there's suddenly all of my old... Um, because in insurance, it, it's a lot about the customer is supposed to have the, the right decision. Uh, they should have their money fast and they should have the right amount. Um, and I also worked at companies that had the, the, um, the idea that if uh, they didn't reclaim money if we did it wrong. They only reclaimed money if the, they could prove that the client had uh, kind of lied or something. Uh, which, I mean, it was very, very nice because it was a kind, a kind approach to, to insurance. Um, so for me, it's always been easy because I've mostly worked with software where we could see that the, the end result for someone could be very, very bad. We worked with customers that had very little income. They were depending on the money they got from us. So it was easy to see that if we did something wrong, it could end with someone not being able to feed their kids. So for me, the moral has been, I have a very strong moral core, which not always is a good thing, uh, depending on where you work. Um, I would never have been able to work in a company like Boeing or Volkswagen or uh, any other where we kind of have to decide to put money first in, in situations. But I guess for me, it's always been, again, the gut feeling. If, if something goes wrong, will I, will I be able to live with having made that decision? Which is, of course, extremely easy if you're a white middle-class woman in Sweden, because the, I, I would probably not starve if, if I lose my job. And I mean software, I mean building IT, that I can find another job. It's not as easy if you're just starting out or in a, in a country where, where the welfare isn't as good as here. So. Um, yeah, in one of your talks, you, you actually do, you, you set up a sort of team of people all in different roles. And one of them is someone who, it's their first job. They just got it. And it's, I, I really like the way you told that, that story, right? That like, it's not when people accept kind of shortcuts or they kind of like let something go, it's not necessarily a straightforward thing about greed, right? It can be about their, the personal circumstance that they're in. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you always have a choice, but you know, not, not really sometimes, right? You might have obligations to other people. 
you, know, you might have a family, things like that, people depending on you, or you might just be one paycheck from not having an apartment anymore. And when you're facing that, you know, questions become a lot less straightforward than they might seem, you know, when you see the end result of all kinds of, you know, little decisions where people let things go. And it's important to be, to be, in order to really address the hard issue, you need to, you actually do need to be empathetic about things like this. Um, just before we move on to talk about your book, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the experience I read about in your blog, I think, about um, you got a new job in February 2020. Um, yes. We can all probably go back in our timelines to what happened a few weeks after that. Uh, and so you you had a few weeks uh, in, in your new job or a few days in your new job before going remote. Uh, and I know you've written about this in a chapter in, in, the, in the Netherlean pub book, but I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit what your, about what your experience was like going remote. Um, sure. Yes, I, I was, I think it was my third or fourth week where, um, where we decided to just set everyone home. And uh, the, the first decision was, let's just go home for two weeks and see, see what happens. Um, so I was a manager for a pretty big, uh, complex team of developers, uh, where we, so I was spending so much time uh, getting to know everyone, getting to know the, the, the company, the application, what parts am I responsible for? And then suddenly having to just send everyone home and move into some sort of crisis mode where we focused every minute of the working day we spent on kind of thinking of scenarios that could happen. So what happens if 50% of our developers get sick? Uh, what happens if the school closes? What happens if everyone gets sick? What All of the kind of the worst scenarios to probable scenarios and kind of how will this affect us and, and the business? Uh, so I was exhausted after two weeks because I was in, in full panic mode for two weeks. I, I never worked so much. Um, I wasn't in front of a computer screen so much, but I kept thinking of who have kids, uh, where do they live? Do they have a, um, a family that they can lean on? Uh, is anyone alone? Is anyone having mental problems before? Um, I had a few people on, on 50% sick leave, how will this affect them? And then also as a tester, one of the things a lot of us talk about is kind of the being the social glue in a company. So we, especially the really, really good testers I, I talked to, they have a skill of hearing something in a conversation and connecting that to something they heard at the coffee machine and then being able to bring these two people into a room with a third people uh, person because they realize that that team is doing something that will get affected by the things that these two people just said. And that kind of just disappeared because all of the social um, mingling, all of the coffee chats, all of the hearing someone talk about something while you pass, all of that just disappeared. Um, 
a lot of the things that I focus on as a manager, kind of body language and how just how does the person feel in the room? I have a lot of these weird, um, there's probably like pheromones or smell or, or something that you kind of just as with the gut, but it feels a bit like magic. You can, you can almost taste if someone is stressed, even if they aren't saying it. And all of that is gone uh, on the other side of the screen. So it was an interesting couple of months before I realized that I might be extremely stressed, but my team members were great. They loved it. They loved working from home. They were using uh, the extra time to exercise. They ate better. They did everything right. And at the same time, I was eating McDonald's while in front of my screen, not sleeping, eating sleeping pills to even get a couple of hours. Um, so slowly I accepted that they were as fine as they could be. So. I just had to kind of learn to live with it. And are you going to the office now? Uh, we have opened our office. Uh, we have a very, very big office and a lot of people choose to not be there. So in, in theory, you could work five days an hour, uh, four or five days a week from the office if you like, because there are so many people who, who don't feel comfortable doing that. I have been kind of a two day a week at the office, three days at home situation. I also have the luxury of working for an employer that actually kind of helps me a lot with like, take a cab if you need to take a cab to the office, don't go with the, the commuter train or do you need something home to set it up or do you need a parking space? How can we how can we make this so you feel safe coming to the office? Thanks very much for sharing that. It's um, it's really great to hear everybody's story. I mean, you, you know, the the good parts and the bad parts, and it's it's really nice when people share because you know sometimes we keep these things to ourselves, our challenges to ourselves, and and you know then we think we're alone uh, and no one else has gone through the same thing. Um, at LeanPub, we were a remote team when the pandemic started, and uh, but but one thing that was kind of new for us was onboarding people. Uh, who we'd never met you know i've i've now worked with a number of, of people that i've i've never met in person i don't even know if i'd recognize them or like you you would after a minute right but but um we we managed it, it took some it took some time and it took some you know trial and error but we did end up with a pretty robust onboarding system that that seems to work and yes providing people with the right equipment actually is is really important and providing them with the sense of like we're going to take care of what needs to be taken care of um, is also really important. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, everyone all around the world has been been sort of facing these challenges and seeing the ups and downs. Um, the last pandemic related question I wanted to ask you is hopefully, we've, we've been, been, been a pretty serious talk so far, but uh, is, uh, is about um, gaming. I know you're into, into gaming a bit. Um, when I was first preparing for this interview a couple of weeks ago, I actually laughed out loud when I was sort of flicking quickly through your Twitter feed because you had a this one post about a tweet about a list of accomplishments. And it was like, you know, I did this, I did that, I did that. And I avoided the boss fight in Skyward Sword by not starting the game. And it, the reason I laughed out loud was because I was at that moment, like in my, you know, gaming world, there was this boss I had to fight in Skyward Sword. And I was like, oh, damn it, I'm just going to go get bugs. 
but um and so but actually playing video games has actually helped me kind of deal with you know being home so much and stuff like that have there been any particular games video games or board games or otherwise that you and maybe you and your family have, have particularly enjoyed during all this time together um i mean we are a family of four gamers um so i i don't think that's changed that much um I must say Skyward Sword is probably not my favorite. Um, I like parts of it, but the bosses are horrible. Um, I went back and played through the second Nino Kuni game and the Dragon Quest something. I uh, can't remember which one, but uh, two Japanese RPG games. So they're, they're cute. There's a catastrophe going on. You have to save the world. It's very fitting. Yeah, those old Dragon Quest games are some of my some of my favorite. Um, and I, I, I always like it's funny because like you enjoy getting to the end, but the beginning is, is always to me the best part because you know you have this whole adventure ahead of you. Hope, hopefully not full of the same monster with eight arms just, you know, drawn differently and you have to hack them all off some arbitrary number of times before you finally hit the hit the gem in the middle. Uh, sorry for me, for anyone listening who doesn't know what we're talking about, but it's... I know exactly it, which boss that is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so moving on uh, to the next part of the interview where we talk about your book. So you've got this great book called uh, Would Hugh Risk It?, which is a, a play on, on heuristics, uh, tools, traps, and weapons for software testing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, it's a, it's a unique book, it's a really fun book, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how, how the book works and what your inspiration was for uh, putting it together. Sure. Um, it started with uh, Lisa Crispin. I mean, one of my big uh, testing idols, one of the people who shaped, shaped me as a tester with her books. Um, we are members of the same Slack group and she offered to do workshops with kind of new voices. Um, and I asked her if she wanted to do one with me. So we, we, we agreed to do a workshop together and we, the only thing we had decided was that it was to do with something with risk, because that's something we both uh, do a lot of talks and workshops on. And also, I really wanted to figure out what the hell this heuristic thing was that everyone was talking about, because it's something I hear people talk about all the time, but I just couldn't understand what it was. Um, and I had been reading a lot of great blog posts about it. So I was like, well, I want to do something with heuristics. I want to do something with risk. Uh, what can we do with that? Um, and we had, um, there's a, a deck of cards called Test Sphere, which is, of course, a big inspiration. It's the same type of deck, but I also wanted to bring the gaming aspect into it. And um, one of, the other women in our Slack group, Trish Co, uh, had some designs of old, I don't know what they called, it's like card decks with role-playing games where you have like a figure, they have an attack score and a defense score and maybe a little text. So I was like, what if we do something with this? So it started with the workshop that ended up as a, a card deck that's also available for sale. And then once that was done, I thought, maybe I can do a book about this. So I decided to read uh, or write um, 
a blog post about each of the cards. And then I transferred those into a book. And the way the game works, if I if I recall correctly, is that so you've got these, these awesomely drawn, really fun cards, uh, which have a kind of, you know, cartoon image um, with animals, which is always great. Um, and then and then a kind of riddle. And I think the way you're supposed to you're supposed to play the game, I mean, you could play it with yourselves or with other people, but you look at a card, you see the image and you read the riddle, then you try and think about how that would apply to testing. Is that is that how it works? Yes. Okay. So there's a, a, a title that's kind of a hint. Uh, the picture is connected to the title. And then there's a rhyme that tries to um, vaguely explain what this could be about, but, it, but it's, it's meant to be open to interpretation. So it's more like um, a, a tarot card reading than a formula. Uh, so you might get something that tells you, hmm, um, what if everyone is not like you? And then you think about a project you're working on or a problem you're, you're thinking of and, okay, could there be a problem with me being biased to people who are like me, for example? Um, so there's one about, uh, in my mind, it's about all of the different problems that come with culture and, and localization. So we tend to think that we know that something works in a particular way, like addresses or, or social security numbers or names or, or anything. And when you start looking at the different parts of the world, almost all of those truths are wrong. So that's one of my favorite cards because you can always spend years on testing just would this work in a different country or did we build the software wrong? Yeah, I think, I think my favorite uh, card image is the glutton. Uh, which is this big, big purple dragon uh, feasting, and I think I think my my takeaway from that one, and and it's it's great because you get to see the the title of the card, the image, and then the the sort of riddle or little poem, and then you you actually then in the book you 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 know have these posts where you talk about what's going on there, but you know the glutton you can see that as the image of the person who just like wants testing to never end, just give me more and more and more, and let me go deeper and deeper and deeper. My favorite one though. Uh, is um, fool's assumptions, mm -hmm. um, and it's partly because it's about language. And the, I'm going to read the read just to give people a sense of the flavor. So the the image is a picture of a, a bird with a jester hat on, uh, kind of dancing and very cheerful, um, at least as I see it. Uh, and um, and the riddle goes: friendly questions save the day, make foolish assumptions go away. Who knows if they meant what it means for you? Keep asking why, what, and of course who. Um, and that line, who knows if they meant what it means for you, gets to the heart of, I mean, not just in testing or software, but like just a fundamental problem of, of human cooperation, uh, which is that, um, you know, people can use the same formulation in language to mean very different things. And, and it can be hard to, to see through that. And in particular, when you're working with people on teams for a long time, words kind of take on their own meaning. You know, there's a little, you associate it with a particular, let's say a particular part of the code or something like that, right? You have a little nickname for it. But then I don't, I don't know why this particular problem like is an obsession for me, but like I've just, you can see it happening where the meaning of a term is getting fuzzy and people start using it in different ways. And the, the real, 
the reason it's such a hard problem to solve is that if you point out what's happening, people are going to say, oh, stop being so pedantic. And it's like, no, this is, we're going off a cliff here. <laughs> anyway, that's, that, that, that was my favorite one. Um, another really great one um, is alithophobia, which is about being, uh, well, like I actually, I didn't, I mean, maybe I made that association unconsciously, but it's about being afraid to tell the truth. Yes, it's the fear of truth. Which can, again, yeah, as you were saying, you know, that can, you can approach the fear of truth from many different directions and what that means, right? Is, is this the, is the person who's responsible for delivering the project on time afraid of the truth? Uh, is the person who's, you know, as we've spoken about, maybe crossing their own line and letting it go? Um, afraid of the truth um, is afraid is being afraid of the truth necessarily a bad thing um, you know things like that um, and just another one that that I really like is um, drowning in the deep um, depths and shallows play a role in, in a lot of these and, and this one is a an image of a, a diver in an old-timey diving suit you know kind of with a hose connecting him to the surface but with tentacles reaching up at him uh, from a, basically a giant squid while he's looking at a cute little little squid uh, right in front of him. And uh, that, that one goes, I'm glad you dared to take that leap, hunt the treasures hidden deep, but beware, just don't get caught and end up drowning, learning not, um, which, which is another great lesson, which is, you know, um, where did I hear this recently? You know, you either win or learn. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and keeping that kind of thing in mind can be really important. So we're not going to go through them all, but just to give people a taste of, it's a really great book. It's really fun. Uh, and it's it's really great too because it, it gives you both the sort of like I said the fun of these riddles and images and stuff like that, but then actually a serious discussion of of, of what they're all about. Um, so just moving on to the last part of the interview, uh, I was wondering if I could ask you uh, why you chose LeanPub as the platform for uh, writing and publishing your book. Um, as you mentioned in in the early in the interview, a lot of computer science programming testing books um, tend to be ebooks. Um, so I came across LeanPub um, maybe like seven years ago uh, when I, maybe five years, I, I can't remember, but uh, a few of my, my female testing uh, friends had written books. Uh, one is uh, Testing in DevOps uh, by Katrina, um, exploratory testing by by uh, Maret, of course. Um, um, so I knew about LeanPub, and I so I had an account because I had bought books there. So so it started with me just trying it out and, and figuring out along the way how to do it easily. I've also been been collaborating in a, a couple of testing books. Um, around the world in software testing i think it's i can't remember the title exactly i have to look it up um but two testing books which are kind of collections of stories from around the world so i had i had done leanpub through them but they used the the github approach while i did everything online uh, i'm it probably gave me a bit of headache uh, and it made me sad at times, but it also it was very easy to visually see how it was going to look. So, so um, and in the end, it was just a very easy to get started 
very hard to get stuck on details. I love to learn about the markup language. And of course, you always want that one formatting option that you don't supply. But I think the end result ended up very good. Well, thank you very much for for sharing that. Um, actually, I should mention the other the other book was um, that you have a you have a you contributed to was Software People Work from Home, which is yes. which is also really really good. Um, but yeah, when it comes to problems, so you used our our, our browser writing mode, um, and uh, yeah, I mean the last the last question I always ask is if there was one thing we could build, one feature we could build for you, or one thing we could fix for you that that really you really hated and caused you consternation, what would you ask us to do? And I guess we'll have to bracket here. How we deal with um, account upgrades because we had a an unfortunate <laughs> hiccup with that, which was something we are actually working on improving. But um, other other than how we handle account upgrades, uh, what's the thing that I mean? If you and if there's more than one, please share. But you know, what's the thing that like caused you the most? You know, shouting at the computer or banging on the table kind of moments. Um, I think you're not going to like the answer because I've read a number of articles that you it's a, a deliberate choice, but I disliked that I couldn't format my, um, uh, Jesus, what's the name? The content, the, the list of the chapters. Oh, the table of contents. Yes. It annoyed me uh, a lot until I let it go. And, and well, actually, what, what, what specifically were you trying to do that you couldn't, that you couldn't do? I wanted to have more formatting options so because it ended up very large or or very empty uh, there was like no middle ground in and that could probably have been fixed by mm. doing the chapters and the subparts in a different way but it I ended up with either a table of content that was 10 pages long or um, it just didn't look exactly the way I wanted it to yeah, I know that. No, thank you very much for sharing that. So would, would um, <clears throat> the ability to like kind of, because the way our table of contents works is it basically looks at um, where you've got chapter headings and subheadings and then sub subheadings and things like that and generates it automatically. But were you were you more looking and would you have liked to have been able to like type out things specifically for each entry in your table of contents or have more control over the, the font size and things like that? I think being able to have a different font size for the table of contents so I could squeeze that, that could have that smaller while keeping the rest of the book bigger. That would okay. probably have been, been good. Okay, okay. No, but I'll, the I'll... end result ended up good. It just, it took me a lot of time to get it where I wanted it to. Yeah, no, that's no, that's. I'm actually going to add that as a as a story in our discussion queue uh, as soon as we're done with this interview because we do actually have like sort of font settings for for different like global font setting size settings for different things, um, but we actually don't have them for the table of contents, and we actually we know we have like line spacing and spacing in between paragraph settings that you can do and stuff like that, but we've just never we've just never applied that same mechanism to the table of contents before, and it, it totally makes sense. That one would want to do that particular i mean one of the reasons i i guess i'm kind of particularly sort of sensitive is that like it's the kind of the first thing you see um and and you know i can understand wanting to have you know better control over that first thing that people see and it, also you know if you make a sample book people see the table of contents or if it might even be on your book landing page and so you know you want to show people what's in the book uh, to help encourage them to see that you know that's the right book for them and they want to buy it so that's that's really important 
Well, uh, Lena, thank you very much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. I'm sure everyone really enjoyed it, even though we, you know, we, got, we got very serious. I'm sure people probably really enjoyed the discussion. And uh, yeah, thank you very much uh, for uh, using LeanPub to publish your book. Thank you so much again for having me. And thank you for, for producing the awesome software that makes it easy to publish books. Thank you. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.